Who is S.D. Anderson? I don't remember. I changed my name somewhere. Um, I think I was making fun of like really astute people who they make sure, like say they go by their middle name. Oh, yeah. In my case, Daniel. But they make sure they leave that first initial or they like do first and middle initial as their name and you know it, but it becomes a thing they only do after they achieve like a certain status in life then they do that i had a uh, my my academic advisor in university was named a george davis yes but he had a good reason for for having his name a george davis cuz his given name was alpheus that's sweet it's a it is a sweet name in context of you know the times that he was uh named but it would be an unusual name in the context of the 1980s you know when i was in when i was in college so i can understand why he would do that plus it sounded more distinguished that way yeah it's a it is a matter of distinction and and sd anderson sd anderson does sound i have to say you know like like having a phd after your name it sounds pretty distinguished i think i was in our sales meeting and i changed it to that i see all right well but what's really funny is we have sales reps who would just put like you know one name they put like bert or whatever bert is not the name of any of our sales reps but they would just put one name on their zoom thing and it's like hey there's supposed to be a level of professionalism to this right yeah especially if it's a common name what if you have three guys named john on there Exactly. Yeah. So I, but someone else had like a middle initial or a first initial and then there, I don't remember how it was, but I don't know. I was just making fun of something and I went with SD Anderson. Hi, I'm George Tekmachev and I'm here on the Eastern Target Archery podcast with SD the big cat Anderson. If anyone calls me SD at Vegas or anywhere else, I'm not going to, I'm going to look right at your face, probably say an obscenity towards you and just keep walking. You will. Or I'll just keep walking. Yeah. I'm not going to respond to SD. So it won't be a funny joke. It won't be a funny gag after today. That's it. Okay. But we've had our fun with it now. Hey, Steve. SD. funny stuff anyway uh hey we've got a lot on the podcast today uh we had tom dealen in um on the last episode to go over what's going on with the 30 second rule so we're going to talk about that a little bit (laughs) gotten we've gotten wind of um something that's going to be controversial i think another proposed rule that uh, we'll discuss and uh we have for the first time in the history of the eastern target podcast decided to dedicate specific segments of the show to an ask me anything theme. And we, boy, we got a lot of questions on, on our open call for an AMA. And so rather than just do an entire show, just with those questions, we're going to cherry pick. And the winners, uh, that is the people whose questions have been chosen by Steve, not by me. Oh. Um, you're the one doing the picking here, Steve. Yeah, I need to go uh, pick. Um, yeah, Steve's gonna Steve's gonna send those folks their choice of uh, half a dozen Axis arrows, or a dozen X twenty seven X twenty three, either one. So, uh, with indoor season upon us, that's actually a really good, uh, nice prize you guys are putting up. I think we're gonna pick three of them for this particular show, Steve. 
three seems like a lot, but okay. Okay. Well, it's up to you since you're the one that's got to, you're the one that's got to figure out who's getting the arrows by your choice. Uh, I'm going to leave it to you to pick how many you want. And for the next few shows, we'll be cherry picking more of those same uh, responses that we got on the AMA dartboard. How did you do it? Dartboard or, or, you know, rotating drum full of ping pong balls or how'd you do this, Steve? There was a lot of good questions. I'm actually picking a third question from, uh, I had two picked and I just saw a good one from Chris Horan. Oh yeah. I I know Chris. He's in the UK, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure is. Yeah. He's in that, uh, he's in that type group of our favorite British shooters. So (laughs) there's a lot of, I really, there's a lot of British shooters. I do like there are, they don't seem to hold any disdain for me as an American, which is not, not to your face. No. Yeah. They're very kind. So generally. All right. Well, I've just lost the questions now. Well, we'll find them again. Okay. So did I don't, I know you don't listen to the podcast, so you probably didn't hear what Tom had to say, but um, in general terms, the, the biggest um, being the bonnet of a lot of shooters right now is this 32nd rule instead of 40 per arrow rule that's been passed by WA Congress. And um, you know, just to recap, um, back at the Congress that was held, um, and I misspoke. I said passed by Congress. It's actually passed by the Executive Board. Congress did not pass it because they uh, that's not the kind of thing that they would actually vote on. But they did ask Congress for their opinion. And 120 people said yes, and 90 people said no. So 120 is more than 90. And uh, so that was the feedback that the Executive Board had when they went to their meeting, um, which took place last week, and decided to proceed with uh, cutting down the uh, 30 seconds down, or rather cutting down 40 seconds down to 30 seconds. And I know you've got some insight on this because you've had some members of that board actually ask you about it, um, I guess, after the fact. Um, you know, I, I think we've shared our thoughts on this before. We've, we've said this is not going to affect the elite shooter but it could affect the club level shooter. It and, will you know, have an effect on the elite shooter, the elite level shooter, but they'll overcome it. You know, well, scores yeah. will, scores will, people will have to take a nine at times. They'll go, you know what? I don't have time to screw around with this. I'm going to shoot a marginal shot here. I know I'll shoot a nine, whatever, move on. I'll tell you, um, I'm not, I'm not going to be terribly concerned if they decide to reverse this or concerned, uh, surprised. I won't be surprised if they decide to, re- you know, reverse this. Uh... I think just look at any, I mean, you've posted about it. A number of people have posted about it on Facebook and drawn quite large responses. And not True. one of those responses has been favorable towards this rule change. Virtually everyone thinks it's going to hurt the game. And, you know, my feedback to the person who asked me about it, I said, listen, of all the archery games I shoot right now, 50 meters is the least amount of fun I have. It's the least amount of fun I have shooting archery. And if you do this to it, you make it even worse. And it's not that it's worse for me. I'll rarely have an issue with the time. It just makes it less fun for the people who will have an issue with time. They're shooting the same game I am. It's got to be the least amount of fun they have, too. Not the to say it one, isn't fun, just the least amount of fun. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, I think that it's also arguably um, one of the benefits of it is that we do get some 
pretty spectacular shoot-offs and closest to center shoot-offs that are decided by literally a millimeter, things like that. Um, from a presentation standpoint, those are good. Uh, it's got to suck if you're in the middle of that, you know, from the standpoint of uh, competition. Yeah, just to clarify to anyone who was wondering, because I think when I first heard this rule, I heard 30 seconds per arrow. I immediately thought, oh, okay, they're taking the finals from 20 seconds to 30 seconds. That's fine. And then I understood, you know, once I understood what, what they mean is you'd get 30 seconds per arrow during qualification. So your indoor round would now, you'd have a 90 second end instead of a two minute end. Your outdoor round would be three minutes per end instead of four. You know, just really, I don't, I don't know how they're even going to bother doing it in field, but I'm sure they will. Good luck with that. Everyone will get a mark for their scorecard. I've only ever seen time on field, you know, uh, when there's a judge standing there. And uh, even then, um, you know, once the judge gives you that first warning, you basically, you know, then you follow the rules. But, you know, for that particular warning, they can't really affect anything. So I, it's it, it's going to be interesting. I, I think um, if I had to guess, uh, with a little bit of insight that we got from Tom, um, I believe that we will see this rule possibly put off till springtime. I think, you know, looking at everything as I understand it right now, I have a feeling that that is what is going to happen. Because otherwise, it's going to come up in the middle of some actual tournaments that are taking place, including Neme. Uh, and you wouldn't want to have day one at Neem with one set of rules and day two with a separate set of rules. And I think that that would be one reason why they might decide to put it off till say April, something like that. And um, this week they will be discussing that. So we'll see what happens. We will see what happens. I, uh, I sure whatever, whatever happens for sure, Vegas will not change. Uh, Bruce has made that real clear. Yeah, and that says a lot because, you know, that's uh, the best tournament we have in archery. And if they're saying, no, we're going to do it our way. You know, one, some people brought up that they used to do a 90-second thing at uh, face-to-face in Amsterdam. Yeah. And that, you know, I guess whatever, you know, it's uh, – at that point, it's somewhat of a novelty. You yeah, face-to-face. I said to that face. about something else. Someone said, hey, we should do this type of shoot all the time seems to be really successful. I say it's successful because we do it once per year. Yeah. You do it all the time. It becomes less cool. Yeah. Know? Similar to what Rob's doing with the, uh, what is it? The 11 ring, 12 ring, whatever he's added to the targets that he's got for the Lancaster yeah. shoot. Yeah. The 12 ring. Yep. Yeah. I, I, if that were normalized, I think you'd find people would not like it very much, but it's, you know, it's Rob's event and he's got himself, something that adds a little novelty to it. I will, I will point out, it did not go over real well with that World Cup final indoor thing that was done last year. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, yeah. well, you, you were in that, and you know, you tell me what you think. Um, yeah, I wasn't in that one. Uh, Linda was, but... Oh, sorry, Linda was, yeah. Yeah, just watching it, it, it felt like, okay, it's not a bad concept, but the archer who's leading should be picking whether they go first or second right you know because there was huge advantage to i mean it it can go either way but there's there's obviously advantage to knowing if you need to shoot for that little 12 or not and at rob's tournament he has always allowed the archer leading or the archer that's ranked higher i believe i don't remember but he allows them to pick whether they go first or second 
So this will implement a new strategy. And again, it's really cool because we're going to do it once per year. It's yeah. not cool to do it all the time. Not cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you on this. You can't I have think... a Super Bowl every Sunday. Can't no. do it. Otherwise, it's no longer special. It's no longer yes. the Super Bowl. And uh, as a result, you, you lose the reason for doing it in the first place. Yes. Ready to jump into some of these questions we got? Yeah. Uh, let me just, I'm going to read the first one. Yeah, go ahead. From Cody Krug, I believe that's how you announce his name, pronounce his name. Could you explain how you were able to find the best bow setup, meaning stabilizers and weights? Because I think that is the hardest part of the indoor game. And how much do you let your pin float? So why don't you take it from a recurve aspect? Well, I have the, a question when you're done with this too. I know I, I'm going to ask about it. Yeah. Well, for the vast majority of recurve shooters, they really don't try to change up. I mean, most of your top shooters don't really try to change up a whole lot from what they're doing outdoors because the shot execution needs to be very similar. And the aiming principle of recurve for most shooters um, with a few very prominent, very highly accomplished exceptions um, is pretty much the same, whether you're indoors or outdoors. Um, again, you know, speaking very generally, recurve is an execution game. Compound is an aiming game, and there is a difference. Now, with that said, the most accomplished, I will argue, indoor shooter of our time, the only person to have shot a 900 on the Vegas face, he aims, but he shoots his bow like a compound. I would I would argue that Brady Ellison, having come from compound, shoots his bow a lot like a compound shooter. And outdoors, sometimes that does not treat him as well as it could. Indoors, obviously, it is it is a amazingly accurate way for him to shoot, for him to shoot. Most recurve shooters mentally can't handle the way that Brady aims. Now you may differ with what I'm saying, but, you know, based on many thousands of shooters that I've worked with over many years, um, I think that he is in a percentile that's different than most people. And as a result, trying to shoot the way he shoots and trying to set up your stabilizers with a lot of mass weight, the way he has them might not work for most recurve shooters. Yeah. It's the same with, uh, you know, people trying to mimic Mike Schlosser. It's like, right. You don't shoot a lot every day. You're not going to be able to handle that. Right. Or Rio, yeah. you know, Rio, when, yeah. when Rio was super competitive, you know, he was shooting a lot more weight than most of the guys out there on the field in terms of his stabilizer weight. And um, again, uh, an example of somebody who's outside the norm for what he was doing. Mike Schlosser, the current example of that, I think. Now, with that said, there are guys uh, in your category who are shooting lots of mass weight indoors and somewhat less outdoors. In my mind, the principle you've got to keep in mind is that when you're outdoors and the wind is blowing, the wind is pushing you, not just the bow. And what's going to come back to target sooner or with less effort once it starts moving is going to be something actually a little lighter. And I think yes. that, you know, certainly for recurve, um, that is a principle that uh, I feel is important for most people. And then you have the other as aspects of trying to control a really heavy mass weight recurve bow involving your shoulders, involving, you know, your physique, what happens there? You know, if you're um, really strong 
like a Katuna Lorig was back in the 2012 London games. And you're shooting a seven pound recurve bow, mass weight. Um, that was appropriate for her. But the people that won were shooting canonical setups and they were shooting setups that were appropriate to their physique. Kibo Bay and uh, Ida Roman in that gold medal match were shooting more standard setups. So on the recurve side of things, I would say most recurve shooters that I know who are performing at a high level aren't really making big changes to either their mass weight on their bows on the stabilizers. And they're not really making big changes to their shot execution plan. Um, now compound Steve, that's a whole different ball game, isn't it? Yeah. Before we get to compound, you know, one thing I notice about recurve is so many people do not make adjustments to their stabilizers. And I think it must've been something years and years ago, you know, someone shot with, I remember a guy described it. He said, no, I use two of these weights and one of those weights on each stabilizer. That's how we do it. That's just how we set it up. They yeah. don't do it any different. So the bow, I mean, I guess it becomes familiar to them, right? But to me, it's like they're not, they're not really optimizing anything for themselves, but they are familiarizing themselves with something over a point of a period of time. Yeah. Um, Brady and you know, you know, maybe Jake Kaminsky could be credited for this. Those guys started messing with stabilizer weights more than you know anybody else and then you saw it butch johnson like, did uh, before them too i mean yeah you I'm, know. Sure, I'm sure it existed previous but for you know from for me from my point of time in when i started shooting you, you saw it more with the brady and then you saw it with like ojin hook was doing it and he was trying yeah. different stuff and now it's more commonplace but I still see so many people who are like no this is what this is what you put on the front and this is what you put on each sidebar and you use this length sidebar and this extender and you know people now are like ah, extenders are dumb like why use an extender so there's a lot of changes coming in recurve it seems but yeah you like you like you said you can't just go and think that you're going to mimic someone's setup because brady's setup works really well at brady's draw length and brady's you know pull through the clicker poundage and Everything the strength to weight ratio and everything. I mean, it all, yeah. it all comes into play. Yep. Now with that said, to your point, um, yeah, Brady and before him, Butch, um, definitely helped to move that really heavy ship, you know, how a ship really takes a lot of effort to, to turn once it's in motion. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they helped to make some changes, but again, both of those guys came from the compound side. People starting out with recurve, you throw them onto a compound style recurve setup. I, I think that it creates more issues than it solves um, in general terms. And that's why for the most part, your, your standard Korean shooter, um, you know, you know, Kim Jidok, for example, guys like that, um, they're shooting similar setups to what you might've seen 15 years ago on the same team. Right. Yeah. And their their shooting style is probably similar, you know, yeah, strength level is probably so. similar. So very much so. It's just interesting to see from a compound standpoint. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors at play into why you would do something or why you wouldn't. And landing on a particular setup, I don't think you know. I can say here's how I get there. It's just you're starting with kind of a mass weight you feel like is good for you, and then you're moving 
that mass around or adding to it, you know, because one ounce in mass weight isn't a whole lot, but one ounce at the end of a 30 inch stabilizer can make a big difference. So, right. you know, if for me, if I'm shooting an eight pound bow versus an eight pound, three ounce bow, it probably doesn't make a difference. So now I'm, you know, starting about the right mass weight and you're kind of not changing that over time. Once you've developed a shot process, once you're in shooting shape and once you've kind of, you know, you can go from bow to bow to bow and, and pretty much know about what that mass weight is going to be. And for me, that just means here, here's about how many ounces are on each state, you know, on my stabilizers total. And then I kind of know how I want the bow to pitch and, it'll change depending on a number of factors. One, limb angle. So if the limbs are more upright, if the limbs are more parallel, you'll get a little bit different feel out of the bow. You might need to put, for me, it's usually more or less on the front. And that's kind of what I'm working with. A little bit more on the front, a little bit less on the front. And if I need that effect to take greater, if I need that to have greater effect, I might say, all right, I'm gonna take one off the front and put it on the back. Now I've taken that one off the front and I've leveraged the back a little more. So it's kind of a double action thing there. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm pretty slow to make changes. And you just got to examine what, what is happening with your shot process. I think the greatest thing you can have in your arsenal is an understanding of how to diagnose something and then what to do to, to correct that. So Cause a lot of effect. people, yeah, a lot of people can, see like, Hey, my bow's, you know, feels like I'm shaking left and right. Okay. Well, how do you fix that? You know, and not everyone knows how to do that. So I'm kind of just looking at those things once I get to initial setup and then moving it as needed from there. And, you know, say I'm like, Oh, I feel like I need a little more leverage on the front bar. I don't want to add any more weight to the front bar. It's already kind of hard to handle. So I might drop the back bar down a little bit. Change the angle. Yeah, change the angle of the back bar, which effectively moves that center of gravity forward. Yep. Little things like that. Like when we switched from um, when we switched, switched to, from the Prevail to the Invicta, that grip angle is a little bit different. So that caused uh, a little bit of a need for some more weight in the front. A lot of us who were shooting, like say I was shooting 18 ounces on the front bar. By the time I got that one where I wanted it, I had 21 ounces on the front bar. So was that all grip angle? Probably not. There's probably some factors there from limb angle, just where the mass is centered on the riser due to limb pocket placement, things of that nature. Right. So there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it, you know, and then the second part of that question was how much pin float do you have? And it's like, well, <laughs> ideally none, but that's not... <laughs> That's not how it is. And every day is different. So I don't really, I'd say when I'm shooting really well, I have pretty good command on keeping that thing in the middle, you know? Let me, let me back you up just a little bit. Yeah. Float. Yeah. Back me up. Well, float is a function partly of diopter, focal length, what kind of aperture you're actually shooting, you know, uh, whether you have a dot on that scope or you're shooting a ring on your scope or a pin on your scope. It has a function that involves a lot of things that go beyond your natural, actual float. Like if you were to hold a laser pointer and point it at a wall 100 yards away to see how steady you could hold it. 
Yeah, the thing would be all over the place. Yeah, some for some people it would be dead still, um, and for some people it would be all over the place. In in general terms, there's the interaction, of course, between all of these optical things that I just brought up, the shooter's perception, and how that can affect their timing. Yeah. And also, I think you've got the the factor of the stabilizer stuff that you talked about in the first part of the question, and the effect that it can have, not yeah. just on the float, but on your on your um, shall we say the vector of your draw. Um, you know, the feel that you have, you've discussed previously wanting to have your elbow kind of attached to a pallet of bricks kind of feel. Yes. You know, all of these that things must have made an impression on you. If you remembered that it did, because it's a really good example huh. and it has an interaction, right? It's not just, if you change one of these things, it can affect some of these other things in a big way. For example, if you went from a four to a six diopter, your float would be the same, but how you perceive it. Yeah. Change your a great perception. Deal. Yes. And same with going from a, a small dot that fits like an X ring size, like Vegas X ring size dot to one that, you know, goes through halfway through the nine ring. Yeah. You know, which I have done that. And it was pretty amazing. I, I preferred a small dot for a long time and I always shot a fairly small dot. I, I always said it, it fits inside the Vegas 10 and then, you know, one time I was just struggling, struggling, struggling. And Paul Tedford's like, hey, try it. Just try a bigger dot and see what happens. And my timing and just my whole she, I guess you would say, like I really settled down immediately just from a new visual. I was no longer in a rush to try to fire the shot. It was much more relaxed. And then my aim got better because of it, you know? Sure. So, and, and again, that's a perception thing because your actual yeah. float probably didn't change at all. Yep. So there's a, there's a huge component to getting your, your aperture and your brain working together that uh -huh. will benefit that float that we're talking about. If you find about. the right one. Yeah. And, you know, uh, not to, not to digress too much, but, you know, things like this 12 ring that Rob's introduced for this tournament, that is going to affect some shooters from the standpoint of the type of aperture that they use, because some folks who are using a dot that obscures the middle they're gonna to have to rethink that if they're planning to shoot that 12 ring aren't they no just gotta know how to side in so hold over it is what you're saying yeah you go all right to get from you know where i want to aim to the 12 ring i need to move it you know 40 clicks all right just do that, that and then aim aim in the same spot and fire that arrow and then remember to aim it back or move it back yeah okay that's an important point you've brought up you're not actually going to aim at that 12 ring you in your case, might have a different mark on your bar and move to that. Yeah, if it were doable, Rob would want to print targets that had a randomly placed 12 ring. Some low, so some prevent, high. Yeah. That would prevent the, the strategy that you just described. Uh, to a point, it, you know, it's still, obviously you don't want to move it further out in the rings than, you know, you don't want to say, all right, this time it's in the six ring. And last time it was in the eight ring, like that wouldn't be fair to most people, but um, there's still a way to, to get around it, but it would, it would make it a little tougher. Right. For example, move it around a clock face, have it the same distance, but one's at 12 o'clock, one's at six o'clock, one's at three and one's at nine, maybe. Yeah. And then you're going, you could certainly pattern them all and say, all right, I need to move this many clicks, but I'm not about to do that in lighting that I don't know. 
you know, if you say, all right, it's up and down, sure, I'll do that. That's not a problem. But left and right's a different matter. Yeah, I think left and right's a different matter. And you know, you stick one at seven o'clock, now you got up, down, left, right, all of it involved. And you probably just want to aim at the thing and shoot it. So Yeah. Now see, that's that's an interesting insight you've given me because my perspective has always been aim at what you want to hit. And and yeah. your perspective on this, you had a different strategy in mind. And that's an interesting, interesting bit of insight. Well, Greg Poole was doing for a little while a, a thing called tea time archery. And he had brought that up for, he wanted to do a, a uh, indoor round that had, you basically had these little dots on there and you'd pick where you'd call your shot. You know, you'd say, oh, I'm shooting for an eagle or a birdie or a par or whatever. And he had initially had all three spots had the same pattern of dots. So there was like three groups of, there's three groups of this target, right? Just like we have today. And within that group, there was three different dots. And I said, Hey, you got to move that around or I'm just going to side in at the biggest one to hit the smallest one. You know, I'll aim comfortably and I'll hit that little one. Cause it's like the size of an X-ring. I'll hit it more often than not. And he went, Oh yeah. So then he moved them. So they were randomly, you know, placed and, and that was, that was a good way to do it. But anyhow, you know, never really came to be with that round. And now looking at, at Rob's, it's, you know, kind of the same thing. I would, I would want to know, I at least want to have that in the bag. You know, I'm not saying I would use that if I were up there and I felt like, I don't know if I'm sighted in or not. I haven't shot good enough to figure that out. I'd probably just aim at the thing. Figure if I was had an idea of where I was hitting rather than, oh, I think I'm four, four clicks high as is, and now I got to do this. Okay. Is, is that actually right? Or try to just aim at it and try to hit the stupid thing. Yeah. So, All right. Game time decision. Do you suppose that covers the question or was there another element that you wanted to bring up? You know, I, I was just like, I was alluding to, I mean, we talk about float, like, the bow doesn't move, right? It's us. And I've had people tell me like, well, this bow, you know, it wants to aim low. I'm like, no, that's definitely something you're doing. They're like, no, it's definitely this bow. I never had problems with my other bow. I said, right, so if, I, <laughs> said if I put that bow in a hooter shooter, it's just all of a sudden going to aim low. And they're like, okay, well, no. I'm like, so it's something it's, yeah, it might be working against you. And so there's some an regard. interaction, there's an interaction going on. Yeah. But that can be figured out. So sure. I think you want to just, like you said, if you get too crazy with it, it's just going to be hard to bring it back on days when you're tired, it's going to be really hard to, to get the bus to park. Right. So, yeah. The other I, element of, of float, of course, involves timing. Um, yeah. You know, some people have more float than others, but manipulate their release differently. And as a result, timing can come into play. That is, yeah. you know, allowing the shot to go off and magically get your release to go off at the same time. Sometimes it's not quite so magic. It's an actual punch. <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, that's a, that's a legitimate way to shoot. Some guys have won that way. Um, we have certainly seen it come to play recently. It's just real hard to keep it going for a long time, I think, is the, the real issue for most folks. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, to answer that question specifically, I mean, I, I can't answer that question. You know, Jesse Broadwater, 
he doesn't float. He's been aiming in the middle of the X ring his entire life. He's never aimed anywhere else. Yeah. Um, for me, like I somehow get to the X ring and I somehow shoot the shot at that point. It's like Michael Scott, somehow I manage, you know? So it's just, you got to figure out what, where you're at. And when you find like, Oh, Hey, today's a better day. Like, why is it a better day? Did you wake up on the right side of the bed or, you know, again, that cause and effect thing, knowing, knowing what you're seeing, what, what the issue is or what the tendencies are, and then knowing how to cover up those tendencies or fix them. That's the hugest thing. So, yeah, I'll throw out one comment. First learn to diagnose. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. I will throw out one comment, and that is too much scope power, too much diopter can generally create a cascade of problems that have nothing to do with actual changes, but by changing perception. And, um, you know, that's, that can be something to keep in mind. And it's been popular lately. I see all these people like, oh, I've got an 8X lens. Some people say I've got a 10X lens. I'm like, that's like a 1.25 diopter or whatever. You know, like that's insane. And I, I, I can see an application for that, maybe shooting rubber deer. Uh, no, maybe. maybe. No, you want to go the other way. You want like four power. Yeah. So, because you got to gather light and be able to see. Yeah. So, so what's the purpose? What What are these people trying to accomplish? I don't know. I don't know what their problem is. <laughs> maybe they're maybe they're ahead of the game. It's hard to say. You know, at the same time, I've seen what uh, some scope man, you know, lens manufacturers call a four and a six and an eight. And then I look through mine and I'm like, well, that doesn't look the same. So I don't know there, you know, it's a, it's one of those things, get a reputable brand and, and stick. What I like to say is, you know, stick to that. Like I like to have a few on hand. It's expensive. Yes. But it's nice to have a four or five and a six and be able to go between them and say, you know what? I need this today. And might I'm going to shoot this for a while and see what happens. Might have to, uh, might have to get Chuck Cooley on the show to, to address some of this stuff. You know, Chuck being the, uh, the guy behind uh, some major scope brands and uh, optician sure. understands yeah. these things very, very intimately. I think it might be valuable to get him on. So maybe we'll reach and out to him. And he's a listener of the show. Yeah. So, because if I, if I really wanted to know the specifics of something like this, he'd be my go-to guy. He, he understands this better than anybody else I know in the sport. Yeah. All right. You got another one. Yeah. Well, see, oh, this one's, this one's probably for you. And I mean, I kind of know the answer, but it's for you more. Oh, from Guy Maskin. Oh, yeah. I know Guy. Yeah, good friend. In, uh, he just got back from a tournament in Cyprus, uh, brought his team there, and they did pretty well. Yeah, so they were kicking butt. And yeah. if you didn't listen to the episode where we had Guy on, you should. Yes. Uh, Guy Matskin, the X10 is more than 25 years old and still the best arrow out there. With technology advancing so much over that time, how has no one been able to design a better arrow, Easton and other companies? Do you foresee you this to ever change? Well, change is inevitable. Uh, you will see an X10 replacement um, successor when it can be made at a cost that is not insane. That's my, that's my sort of low ball answer to the high ball question. And one of the people who commented on this thing kind of said that they, they said they would be so expensive. You know, they're, he said they're on the edge of being extremely like too expensive now. You know, frankly, he's right. 
Well, if we could, if we could make them less expensive, and if we could make them less expensive, if Eason could make them less expensive, and not compromise quality, they certainly yeah. would. Right. Because, we? well, obviously, but at the same time, um, so what would make it better? Well, there are two things that would make the X10 better: smaller diameter at the same mass, because the mass is actually a function of its design. It's, it's intentive, the mass, but smaller in diameter. Now, there's a whole rabbit trail of stuff that we'd have to talk about that I'm not going to get into if we wanted to talk about what it would take to make it smaller in diameter and maintain the mass. But what I can tell you is it would triple the price as things stand right now with existing materials, methods, and um, again, the quality level that would be required. When you start getting into some of the specifics of how to do it, I'm not really inclined to talk about that a whole lot because we don't need to give, you know, um, a lot of the uh, uh, crown jewels away. But I will say this. I know you guys have worked on it. I know you have product that could be introduced. But I don't think that uh, it's good for the sport to be putting out thousand dollar a dozen arrows. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the bottom line. It's a. Uh... It's an interesting thing because especially in today's in today's age where we see prices of stuff fluctuating going up and it's just crazy right now right and everything is that way nothing is is immune to uh, price change right now but when there's it, it i'm not i don't think there's a replacement like a comparable product for an x10 there's certainly arrows that people can fire out of their bow but it's pretty obvious that none of them work like an X10 does for its intended purpose, which is Olympic yeah. recurve archery. And, and there's a number of reasons for that. It's not just the mass; it's the it's the calibrated um, spine value for each arrow, the custom spine profile for each arrow, the way that it's made specifically to function out of recurve bows, and the frequencies that those recurve strings generate. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that people don't know about the X10, right? And, and, and don't need to and don't need to know. But there's there's a lot of reasons why the X10 works the way it does that are both design based and you know the the uh, materials that were chosen, things of that nature. If you want to improve on it, the only real way to improve on it is to make it even smaller in diameter, which raises all kinds of problems for components raises all kinds of problems for stopping them. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why a product improved X10, besides the cost, would introduce other issues. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's, you know, it's, I'll, I'll put it another way. It is possible to do. Is it a good idea as things stand today? I would say, looking at the balance of things, the answer to that is probably no at the yeah. moment based upon current performance, human potential. I mean, higher scores can be shot with the exact same arrows right now, yeah. but it's not because of the arrow. It's because of other stuff. And as a result, um, that's one reason why that arrow has been in the position that it's been for as long as it has been. And I think that Guy's question is a good one. 
but I think that that gives you some insight as to the why. Right. And it's, it's a weird thing to, to look at pricing on any of this stuff because you go, Oh yeah, you can get arrows for a hundred dollars a dozen. Sure. And it's just like, you can buy a car for, you know, a brand new car. You can buy say a, a Nissan Sentra for $18,000 and say, okay, cool. And then you can buy a Corvette for $85,000. And they're not the same. They both are a car, but that's the only similarities they really share. And when you look at, say, a, a very standard carbon parallel walled arrow versus an X10, there's not a whole lot of similarities they share other than both being classified as an arrow. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that that's a good way to look at it from that perspective. So, Guy, thank you for that question. Um, I imagine Guy's going to want some X-23s, huh? I like Guy. I'll give Guy some X-23s. <laughs> okay, and you had a third question picked out, and I think it was from Chris, was it not? Chris, let me scroll back down the list here. And, you know, there's a lot of questions we're not going to... There's a lot of really good questions, one. by the way. And um, we're going to continue with these throughout some future episodes as well yeah we've gotten so many great questions um that you know rather than just try to dedicate one show to all the questions that we're going to be doing this segment uh, on an ongoing basis we're going to continue to cherry pick some of these questions as we get them but um you've got one from chris chris horan he says because everyone likes a hypothetical question dream team selection time Oh. And it's, it's a, it's a two-part question. George, if you could shoot a team round with any two recurve archers, any gender from any era, who would you pick? And Steve, same for me, but with compound. So I'll let you go ahead. Oh boy. Um, I would, uh, if I had to pick a, a, a team to shoot a team round with at 70 meters, Kim Soon Young is on that team. Without question in my mind. And, um, uh, just in, in terms of gender equity, I would pick Daryl Pace for my other teammate. Daryl Pace. Hmm. Uh, any, any insight I, as to why? Yeah, I can give you why. Um, let's say that um, we look at it strictly from the standpoint of performance under pressure. Both of those shooters had the highest performance under pressure of any shooter I've ever met. Um, they, they were always in their prime, able to execute the shot they needed to shoot to win every time. I'm not saying they didn't get defeated once in a while, but I am saying that when they had to shoot the shot they had to shoot, they shot it. And that's all you can ask for in a team round. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a long list of people that I would love to shoot a team round with for reasons that go beyond just performance. Right. Yeah. yeah I would let's love hear another, let's hear another. I pair. would love to shoot a team round with, um, Ojin Hyuk because he's a, he's, a, he's a, he's a cool guy and, and he's fun, you know, and, and I like him. I would love to shoot a team round with Jay bars because we're really good friends and I know that it would be fun. I would love to shoot a team round Oh, gosh. I mean, there's a there's a ton of shooters um, that I know and that, you know, that that we'd love to shoot a team round with just because we'd love to say, hey, we got to shoot a team round together, you know, 
Right. And as, you know, um, as somebody who's shot with a lot of people over the years, um, it's a really long list and I wouldn't be doing justice to an awful lot of people if I just sat here and rattled off 20 names. But there is something really good about our sport that we have the team round and we have that opportunity to shoot with people rather than against people really often. And it gives it a different dynamic. And I like it. Right. How about you? Yeah, it is cool to, to know that it's cool. In, how do I say this? Knowing that it doesn't hinge on you entirely. Oh, is, yeah it's different, right? It's, it's not necessarily cool or not cool. It's just different because so much of the entirety of our sport basically is individual. And then right. you, sh- you have that quick shift to shoot a team round and it's a little more relaxed. Um, In my mind, it's an entirely team. different dynamic. I mean, it's a yeah. whole different thing and it's a great thing. You know, I mean, it's so nice to be able to, to have that, that contrast that you just described, Yeah, you know, so, and I've, you know, I've made lifelong friends shooting the team round. Yeah. I remember when Arizona cup used to have like a legitimate team round, you know, it was a big part of the tournament yeah. and it was, it was a fun thing, but it was actual team round and we've done it again at some of the other events. And sometimes we use it as practice. We use the, you know, the world championships team or the world cup team will, will do it. Sometimes we, you know, shoot with our buddies and, you know, I remember one time I shot with uh, Jesse Broadwater and Jason Corley, who at the time owned Bow Junkie Media. And Jason was like, I have no business shooting a bow here, but let's do it for fun. And I wore a GoPro on my head and we shot, you know, and it was fun. It was all for fun. And then, uh, you know, shot some of those like with Kevin Wilkie and uh, Roberto Hernandez and that was just a good time, you know, again, Arizona cup, nothing crazy. Actually. Just talking Ari- smack. Yeah. yeah. And Arizona uh, cup team round. I had, I will say the, the most fun I've ever had in a team round was me and Mark Hainline and a kid from Japan. I mean, a kid from Japan and we were up against in the finals, Don Rabska, Hiroshi Yamamoto, and Simon Fairweather. Oh. And do you think we expected to win? No, but I think you probably gave him the business. We did win. Yeah. With the last arrow, I had to shoot a 10. <laughs> and I got that <laughs> shot off. I got that shot off just as the light was about to change red. And it went right in the middle. And the reaction from one member of that other team was, was something priceless. I loved it. And I'll just leave it at that. But it was um, maybe the most fun I ever had shooting a team round. Uh, sometimes you can do pretty cool stuff um, in a team round when nobody expects you to. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's where a lot of big upsets take place. That's what I was driving at. Exactly. Like the, like the Kazakhstan-Korea match. Exactly. You know, like there's, there's, uh, there's power in numbers in the team round. And even though the other team has the numbers as well, you know, it can, it can come together at the right moment. You can have those magical moments. So I would, uh, you know, if I were picking compounders, there's, there's a couple situations I'd want to pick. 
the first I, I thought about this. I was like, well, I'd pick uh, Brayden Galantine and Chris Schaff because we already won a world championships together. Pretty good yeah. team. Yeah. I think we we lost one time and it was kind of our own. It was a rainy match. We didn't even want to go out there. We did not warm up. <laughs> we just went and shot and we lost the match. Other than that, that year we won every match and we dominated. Um, so that would be, that'd be an easy one, you know, maybe a team with say my wife and uh, like Jesse Broadwater or someone like that, you know, uh, that'd be cool. But then I thought about, you know, in a very competitive environment, um, probably if everyone was in their prime, like Rio and Dave Cousins, because you'd get, you'd have, if you had a competitive match, that crowd would be yearning for an upset and it would be a very tough team to beat, I think. And Dave would be Dave and, you know, it would be, I kind of like that in team round, you get to showcase your personality a little bit. Exactly. And I would encourage that, you know, and Braden and I have done it in, in past team rounds and you get to have a little fun. You get to talk a little trash. And I think it would just be a lot of fun with, with uh, the competitiveness of those two. You know, another, um, another one that comes to mind, of course, would be that opportunity you have to shoot with people that are your rivals. And now they're, now they are your teammates, right? Yeah. It brings a whole different dynamic to it. And I think that that is the beauty of the team round. Um, one of the beauties of the team round. And I hope that it never goes away. I, I know that, you know, there's going to be a test of the, um, the two-person team rounds that is going to evolve and that we'll probably see at the Olympic level someday, you know, where it could be two men or it could be a uh, man and a woman, or it could be two women. And, um, you know, I think there might be some pressure when that comes around to changing from the existing team round, but I really like the idea of the team round as it stands today. And, and I would hope that that does not go away, that whatever we get in the future is a supplement, not a replacement. Yeah. I would love to see an additional team round. Each team takes their top qualifying recurve archers and compound archers, and you just shoot them all four on the team. Yeah. Kind of like what we do in the world field, you know, yeah. Compound can figure out a 70 meter sight mark and let's do it. You know, I hope that, uh, you know, just to interject this real quick, I really do hope that we see a change to the compound round where we're shooting a 70 meter distance at perhaps a smaller target, you know, the hundred centimeter face, something like that. Yeah. I think that would, that would be better for the sport in the long run. And I know it's going to be four years before they can do anything about it. But I do think that that would be the next logical thing for them to really pursue. If the I were thing on the they should vote you know, on in four years is to not have to wait four years to vote on stuff. You know, well, the sport is a slow to turn ship and they, they don't pivot necessarily as fast as they need to. Well, that's one reason why the executive board has the ability to make some decisions. I guess they did that with the hit or miss, right? Exactly. That's the kind of thing that the board can. What they can't mess with is stuff that affects the Olympic Games. Right. Okay. And that's, that's, that's the reason why it has to be after the Paris games that they can look at fundamental changes 
Well, you know, and I get that. And, and I, I know you do too, but I agree with you that it would be nice if they were able to make rational decisions that did affect bigger things than, you know, 30 seconds versus 40 seconds or hit or miss versus, you know, scoring rings. Um, I, yeah. If they had, I mean, here we are saying they should have more power to do things to change things. And you got people kicking and screaming about any small change. So certainly there's going to be some dissent on, on this view of mine, but I think that um, at the end of the day, as long as what they are doing is what they're put into Congress for, which is to look out for the benefit of the sport. um, It is better if they have the opportunity to do more when things need to be changed. And, um, you know, you know, and we talked about how sometimes they act like they care about the club shooter, and then many times they disregard the club shooter. A lot of times it seems they care about them when it's arbitrary, like shooting 50 meters versus 60 meters, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and at other times they completely disregard them when it's pretty obvious, like timing and things of that nature. But you and I, well, I, I talked to a, not gonna I'm not gonna name names here, but you know, it was a it was an archer who said that the head of their federation was going to propose a rule that if you had more than three misses, you would be disqualified from the event. Three misses, yeah, yeah after three misses, you would be disqualified. Yeah. And, and thought, you know, it's an interesting rule change. I mean, it would affect your less accomplished shooters for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be kind of embarrassing to come to an event and, you know, say you have, say you have an issue or you're new, you don't quite pick up on an equipment failure and you launch a couple arrows and now you might even shoot all three. You might shoot six arrows and miss all of them or shoot the wrong target three times because you're new and now you're disqualified and they're like, Hey, you got to leave. Like, that's kind of weird, but where, you know, and then you've got, you know, I didn't even think about this, but you've got the barebow side of things where, you know, a miss is probably a little more prevalent. And now that, you know, three of those, you got to leave. You're out of yeah, the tournament. I, I wonder uh, if they thought that through, right? Because, I mean, barebow is popular, um, they, seemingly. They say it is. And you're seeing a situation where you've got a, a rule being proposed, apparently, that could take out half the field. And it's, uh, again, it's a rule that is not ideal for the club shooter. Would you be kind of pissed if you went and paid $100 entry fee and showed up and, you know, all right, my first, my first archery event and you, my first big national event, I've got a hotel for a couple days and, you know, rented a car and you, you blast the wrong target three times and. Or you shoot three misses, now you got to go home. It would be an incentive not to do that, I suppose. I mean, listen, I I participate in another shooting sport where if you drop a particular piece of equipment, you are instantly disqualified. Huh. So you could be at nationals. You could be the top-ranked guy. And if you do this one thing, you're DQ'd. You're done. And that's under the guise of safety, I presume. It is. It is. Now, is this rule proposal under the guise of safety or 
Like they're tired of people looking for arrows behind the target. I think it has a lot to do with people looking for arrows between ends. I do. Because I'm I'm fairly certain this person, (laughs) I'm fairly certain this probably was someone in favor of shortening the round by going to 30 seconds per arrow. Yeah, I have a feeling you're right. And I, I think, you know, I understand where they're coming from on a certain level. Well, I think the in their time, country, Barabo is like huge. So you get a lot more people and you get a lot of misses and, you know, it's probably slowing yeah. it down. And I think that might be the case. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, uh, and, and not to pick on a particular category, but I think that that is where most of this is probably coming from. I don't know. Now, with that said, um, you and I have both seen both recurve and compound shooters cut one loose inappropriately and, and miss, but you don't generally see the same person do it three times in an event. Yeah, I've never done it three times. I'm sure I've done it, you know, enough to have it affect my income, but <laughs> <you know? laughs> I've done it at the wrong time. I know I've done it at the wrong time, shot the wrong target. And that always hurts. But I uh, do know one shooter who has the distinction of having shot a 2000 year old pyramid and a $40,000 clock in two separate events. Would that be uh no, 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 no names, but it happened. Yeah. Well, I think I know who it would be. Yeah. But that was, you know, that was a dodgy piece of equipment they were using and, uh, you know, the, their release was um, well-worn, shall we say. Oh, and, and a car. They shot a car. So three in, in, I think, two seasons. At some point, you know, it, it was like watching. You know, one the, of those display cars, the, the, the Hyundai that they put between the targets, you know, is yeah. the, uh, yeah. See, I was, I'm sitting there watching in Yankton. And I'm like, okay, this, this end is like decided, right? Say, I don't care if they're shooting recurve team round or whatever. Like, well, this end is decided. Someone should go ahead and put one in the grill of that Hyundai over there. <laughs> Hilarious. With with the vice president of Hyundai sitting there in the stands watching. Yeah, yeah. I mean. <laughs> that would have been embarrassing. It would have been funny for us as spectators, but totally, you know, not the right thing to do. There's, there's no team. one else that would have thought that was funny in those stands. I, I guarantee it. <laughs> oh, I would have laughed so hard. But, yeah, you know. yeah. All right, so um, I think that covered it for Chris's question. I think we got way over with Chris's question and into other stuff. So, well, that's that's our tradition here on the Eastern Target Podcast, Steve. Somehow we went from picking a team round to hey, here's what we could do with team round. Oh, hey, now let's all shoot at seventy meters. Oh, hey, here's the rule. Oh, this is stupid. You know, blah blah. <laughs> so, well, this is an element easy. of it's an element of the show that comes free, free of charge. Pretty easy for me to get off task. It happens. Our next podcast will feature a segment with Bruce Cull, where we're going to get the skinny on Vegas 2021, and uh, look forward to that because uh, he's back from his big trip to Africa. You know, I was, uh, I was thinking we should have Kevin Wilkie on the podcast too. I would love to have Kevin Wilkie on the podcast. That guy's got a lot of stories. Oh yeah. A lot of stories. And now he's doing some cool stuff. You know, he's working at uh, Kuyu, which is a clothing manufacturer. And yep. They're they're They do some cool. They're, they're kind of like the X 10 of clothing. Is that so? I mean, in very many ways. Yes. They're, uh, some of their high performance, are- high performance, and sort of damn the cost and 
Um, I, I know that when Kuyu was established, they made a big deal about using Torre fabrics and, you know, the highest the cutting edge materials, things like that. I, yeah, I'm sorry to say, it. you know, Kevin's a good friend of mine, but I don't happen to own a single piece of Kuyu gear. I thought you been, did. I don't, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I should be looking at it now, huh? I thought you had some pants. No, I have cool pants. Cool pants. I swear you had some Kuyu pants and you were like really, really pumped about your pants. No, I think we're talking about someone else. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that they make some outstanding clothing gear. And uh, I don't know what that has to do with target archery, but for sure, I would love to have Kevin on to talk about his target archery experience. And uh, he's, he's just such a great guy. I really enjoyed working with him the years that I got to work with him. And uh, I think that that's a great idea for a guest coming up. He's got some stories, you know, I'm sure he's got some know. funny stories about you and I. And uh, Unfortunately, he does. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll look forward to Bruce and maybe Kevin. And I like it. I'll, I'll leave it to another... you to, I'll yeah. leave it to you to, uh, to see if you can book Kevin. And I, I've already got Bruce lined up. So uh, let's make that happen. I've, I've been kind of on a little bit of a roll with, you know, finding some guests here lately. You have been. You've done a great job. So I don't know. I had some other ideas. I, I, I think I've run out of friends to have on the podcast. You know, we <laughs> have we had Jay on. Jay's been on, right? Jay's been on a couple times, but uh, it's been a while. And uh, there's no question that that they're always some of the more entertaining segments. Um, you know, we've had Dick Tone on. Um, I'd love to have him on again soon. I think that. Uh, it would be great to talk to Rob Coffold and catch up with him um, around the time of his event. And, yeah. uh, you, you know, it might be interesting to see if listeners have ideas for who they'd like to hear from on the podcast. So if you navigate over to the Easton Target Archery Facebook page and you find that, uh, I think it's stuck to the top, but if it isn't, we can make it sticky. Well, when um, we post this one, they can just comment on this post. Oh, there you go. Ha yeah. Comment on the post for this podcast. Tell us who you'd like to have on the podcast and we'll see what we can do. We have hundred percent veto power. There's some people we don't want on. This is true. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree that there are some people that we simply would not consider to put on the podcast. Anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to name names, mind you. <laughs> but i can think of a few <laughs> think of more than a few yes but yeah all well, right what else do we have to talk about there's something what? we were going to do today oh was there i don't there know was wasn't there no you're right there was there was something really important probably not <laughs>